Hello, good to see you all here. Thanks for coming along. I know this is a busy time of year. Great to see so many of you. Uh, this evening, over the next hour or so, we're going to be looking at the title of the seminar for this evening, which is Your Life is Not About You. So, what is my life as a human being for? The gospel is growing in your heart, the gospel is growing in your head as a Christian. Your desires, your thoughts are being made more and more similar to the desires and the thoughts of Jesus. The Spirit is making you more and more like your Savior. You're being transformed into a citizen of the kingdom of Christ rather than being conformed to the culture of this world. So what does it mean for you as a Christian to live in a way that increasingly reflects that both in how you live and how you view yourself? What does it look like for me to think about myself as a member of Jesus' family? Who do we allow to define our concept of self? As I think about myself, am I doing so in the way that Jesus thinks about me? And I want to begin just by laying out some of the parameters and guidelines. There's loads of things that we could focus on, loads of things that would be really interesting to dig into. But we're hoping just to focus on one or two things rather than focusing on too much and then leaving you guys feeling overwhelmed. Many of these ideas I'm sure will be familiar. I hope that one or two of them at least are new for you guys as we think about them this evening. And what we'll do first is we'll spend some time thinking about the world in which we live. Kirsty's going to do that with us. We're going to think about the culture that we breathe in what sorts of things the world champions around us as good and true. We do need to remember that ultimately we live in a world that is hostile to God, hostile to the gospel. And we want to do some collective thinking on why the world thinks the way that it does, why the world speaks the way that it speaks, and begin to identify where there might be some things in the world with which we just have to disagree as God's people. We're then going to take some time to look at what Jesus says about the self, how his words are good, true, better, more beautiful than the words of the world, and how his words on the self, on me, on you, lead to our flourishing as humans rather than our floundering as humans. And we're going to do absolutely none of that in a way that sounds arrogant, in a way that sounds superior to anyone else. We who sit here this evening, we're all sinners who have received grace upon grace from Jesus. But we will have a way in which Jesus and his story out-narrates the world, if I can use that as a phrase, and why it's necessary for us as God's people to sink our roots into Christ, his word, instead of our world. And then we'll finish by looking at some specific ways where these two kingdoms clash, where these two worldviews collide and maybe give you guys some things to think about as we leave. Does that all make sense? A few nods. That will do. That will suffice. Let me pray for us before we go any further. Father, thank you for our time spent together this evening. Thank you for the chance to look at the way that you look at us and the way that you want us to look at ourselves. Give us wisdom, we pray, as we look at your words to understand the good news of the gospel when it comes to who we are and what you have made us for. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to now hand over to Taylor Swift. I hate to interrupt Taylor, but 
Um, we've heard what she's had to say, and now we're going to go to the other extreme and hear from an American philosopher, Michael Allen Fox, and he has this to say on our world. We live in an age of self-obsession. Everywhere we look, we encounter a preoccupation with self-interest, self-development, self-image, self-satisfaction, self-love, self-expression, self-confidence, self-help, self-acceptance. The list could go on. But let's define our terms. What do we even mean when we say self? Well, there's a basic way that we use self, isn't there, to mean a consciousness of ourselves as individual people. So I know that I'm Kirsty, I'm not Adele. Uh, surprise. And that is because we are different selves, we are different subconscious beings with different minds and bodies and life experiences. And traditionally, our self-concept or our personal identity has been defined by three sources. So firstly, it was looking outward, so to circumstances, to family, to friend. Looking inwards, to strengths and passions. And then looking upward for a transcendent meaning to our personhood. But nowadays, we've been told a different story. Regardless of what any of those external sources and realities may say, or what any God has to say about me, I get to tell my story in my way, any way that I like. And if reality doesn't match up, well then reality's just gotta change. So when Scott and I are gonna use this term self, um, for the rest of the seminar, we're going to mean that colloquial understanding of the West that refers to the real me. It is that understanding of the modern self that I've put down on your sheets. So authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with our inward feelings. So I'm born free and I'm able to create my own identity. Education exists to help me embrace and embody outwardly what I feel within. And growing up is not about learning restraint, but about learning to act out and perform all of my desires. So how did we get here? How did this change come to be? Well, the philosopher Charles Taylor has tracked this transition over the last 500 years, and he calls it a transition from the poorest self to the buffered self. And we've already seen, haven't we, that that traditional sense of self the poorest self was one that was very open. It kind of relied on external sources. But now we've cut ourselves off from those external sources, from any transcendent sense of meaning. And instead we have created a buffered self, a self with sovereign autonomy. And we could spend hours um, thinking about how it tracked through those 500 years. Um, you'll be really glad to know that we're not going to do that. So we're going to skip over the big thinkers that are really important to look at, people like Rousseau and Marx, Darwin and Foucault. But tonight we just want to introduce you to one of these big thinkers, the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who famously said those words, God is dead. Now the reason why he's important is not actually his atheism, um, apparently that's pretty trendy in 19th century Germany, it is in fact because he was one of the first to understand the implications of his atheism. He understood that if there is no God, then there is no objective value, no universal, no court of appeal to which you can go for an adjudication between one truth and another truth. He concluded that if there is no God, then all there is is different ideas in different people's heads. 
And he therefore argues that a godless world is one with only ideas and power. Nietzsche's conclusion, um, quite savagely, is this. That if all you can do is submit yourself to someone else who holds more power of your life, then you are a nothing. So to have a significant life, you've got to exert your own power. And then you become the person that you are. Does that sound slightly familiar? Well, I think it does. Because all over St Andrews, there are Nietzsche's everywhere, aren't there? Saying, don't you tell me who I am. If reality doesn't match up to my choices, reality's going to change, not me. If my body doesn't match up with how I feel, then my body needs to change, not me. And if you don't agree with who I say that I am, well, then I'll cancel you too. In the 1980s, this transition um, was re-termed by an American um, sociologist called Robert Bella as expressive individualism. Um, it's a phrase and a term that I put down your sheet as well. So each person has a unique core of like feeling and intuition that should be expressed if individuality is to be realised. Now, even if you don't know that term, I suspect we know the slogans that underpin the movement. You be you. Be true to yourself. Find yourself. Follow your heart. These slogans are philosophy playing out in our popular culture. And it is important for us to remember that the way that we think about the world is not actually primarily based on rational arguments um, or first principles. It's much more intuitive than that. And the way that we think about the world is therefore a complex set of factors that have created how we imagine the world to be. And so this story is a deeply complex one that we do not have time to go into tonight. But expressive individualism is therefore not simply a construct, a construct or a concept that we can intellectually just recognise and reject and move on from. Instead, we need to recognise that it is the culture that we live in and interact with every minute of every day. And therefore, I think it would only be arrogant for us to say that we are entirely immune to its influences and its ideas. And so therefore, that is why we've chosen to just take some time, occasionally, to consider the air that we're breathing and to ask the question, is there any way that we are unconsciously allowing that air to poison us. So let's try and at least recognise a couple of the assumptions that are underlying some of these messages that we have in our world. If you're losing concentration, you're doing really well, guys. Ten seconds. I want you to come up on your sheet with as many Disney characters as you can whose story is one of finding and forging self-identity in the face of the naysayers. Yes. Yeah. It is, it is a, it is a good, a good return. <laughs> Similar, isn't it, with fashion, I wear these clothes to express myself, or maybe even with the church, I attend this congregation because the worship speaks to me. We're encouraged to operate as consumers of those things that make us happy and help us to publicly express how we feel inwardly. And there is a function of freedom in this, which is positive, but it also comes at a cost. And um, Scott and I want to be really nuanced throughout this evening, as much as we can be, to show that expressive individualism is not an unmitigated bad thing. It does have helpful things that it recognises, such as the fact that as humans, we're emotional beings with feelings. 
But if we allow um, expressive individualism to become the center or the core of our identity of self, then that is a deeply, deeply dangerous thing. And it has led to some of the wackiest and saddest conclusions of our culture. In his um, many books on the topic, Carl Truman has persuasively argued that lots of elements of the so-called sexual revolution of the last 50 years have come and are symptoms of this era of expressive individualism. Because identity is now seen in terms of a self which is psychologized and sexual and able to create and recreate itself. And so essentially what it's done is it's reduced humanity down to the sum total of its desires. Freud ran with this and went to an extreme. And he said that humanity was the sum total of only its sexual desires. And if you haven't realized already, we will see soon that this is a tragically diminished view of what it means to be human. And so even as we're dipping our toes into the edge of such a big topic, I think we should already be seeing that this philosophy is profoundly at odds with the Christian gospel. Now another implication um, that we want to recognize and we want to reject is the claim of the sovereign self. So this is the ideology that has evolved. Um, it's moved from the I am statements to the I identify as statements. So what I mean is, it's no longer I am a student or I am a woman, it's I identify as Scottish or I identify as middle class. Now you might think it's just words, but what's key is the assumption underlying it, because it suggests that there is to some extent a way in which we can choose what we are. In the words of Madonna, I am my own experiment, I am my own work of art. But this should not uh, simply surprise us, um, even as it confuses us, maybe it's actually really attractive to us. Because just think of Adam and Eve, when they were looking at that fruit in the garden and they wanted to be like God, they might as well have been singing, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. And as they rejected their humanity, and they rejected the instructions of their good creator, they did not achieve freedom, they achieved destruction. And this is a pattern that we are really tragically seeing play out in our culture today. And so Professor Glenn Harrison, um, who was a former consultant psychiatrist, some of you guys might know, he wrote A Better Story, um, which is one of the reads that we'll recommend at the end, has looked at the research um, in particular, um, and he has concluded that this era of self-creation has not created the happy, stable people that it promised. Now, you can never um, be simplistic about these things, and we would never ever want to draw causal um, links where they just don't exist. But it is fair to say that the culture of expressive individualism has most likely in some way contributed to the mental health crisis amongst our teenagers and young people. Now, Harrison um, first looked at a common sense argument to show this, and he was saying, if we live in an age that says, You've got to find yourself. What do you do if you don't like what you find? What do you do if you don't want to be 100% true to the person that you see within? Because the offer of the buffered self, is, it's great, it's attractive, it's really exciting. But the reality of the buffered self 
is that it puts us on a treadmill of constant self-creation. Professor Harrison then goes on to look at the research surrounding the self-esteem movement in the 80s and 90s. And um, whilst we obviously need to acknowledge that um, a certain level of self-worth is really important for our well-being, the evidence is stacking up that these booster statements that we so often hear, I'm special, I'm fabulous just the way I am, I am enough, I'm perfect even, do not, in fact, promote self-esteem, but do the opposite. They destroy self-esteem. And he points to the work of a psychologist in Canada called Joanna Wood, and she did quite an interesting experiment. She basically took three groups, made them entirely random, and to the first group, she gave a set of these self-booster statements, like, I'm wonderful, I'm great at all I do, you know, all of these statements. And she said, I want you to essentially spend a 20-minute personal selfie quiet time each day and just absorb them, just meditate on them, claim them as your own, make them true. The second group, she gave the same statements, but she said, I want you to do something quite different. I want you to read them, and I want you to write down where you agree with them for yourself and where you disagree with them for yourself. Third group, just had to do nothing, that was easy. So, three months in, six months in, they did some trials, and just have a think for five seconds. What do you think they found? Well, the last two groups, nothing changed. But for the first group, those who already had quite a high view of themselves, felt a bit better about themselves, great. But for those who really needed it, it had backfired. Those with low self-esteem had even less. And so we ask the question, why? And Glyn Harrison helpfully says, it is just because it is your own propaganda. If that is all you have it to offer is what is inside yourself, it is not much. And so we see a buffered self that is weak, that is fragile, and that is easily wounded. And so the air that we breathe, it should not surprise us, even as it grieves us, not because we're geeks who've read all of Nietzsche, or because we're doomsdayers, didn't know that's a word until I wrote it, uh, who say that we're, you know, as a world, going down the drain. Instead, it is because we are people who know our Bibles, and we know the comfort of a God who has told us about the world we live in long before we were ever born. And so I'd love you guys to spend five minutes looking at Romans chapter one. Um, we're just looking at verses 21 to 25, and there are a couple of questions on the sheet to think about together. So we've, um, over the last you know, 15 minutes or so, we have tracked a few of the factors that help um, explain the culture that we're swimming in and um, how statements that definitely my grandparents and some of yours would only have blinked at have now become populist anthems. So how do we protect ourselves and our churches from the seductions of the sovereign self? As those immersed in this culture of self, how do we resist its power? And as Christians with the identity in Christ, we have a better story, and that is the story that Scott is going to explain to us now. Thank you, Matt. Um, when I had just graduated from university, I had an American friend stay with me for Christmas. 
And every single Boxing Day as a family, we would collectively go and visit Grandma, who lived in an extremely inaccessible part of the west coast of Scotland. It's an hour's drive west from Glasgow, a 40-minute ferry ride across the Firth of Clyde, and then a 10-minute drive north once you get off the ferry. And because it's an annual tradition to go and see Grandma, and because he didn't really have much of a choice, my American friend Judson Van the Third, no word of a lie, jumped in the car with us and came to Danoon. Fun fact about Danoon, it's at least 15 years behind the rest of civilization. The local cinema has just excitedly announced the release of Shrek 2. <laughs> and for this reason, and other reasons that I won't go into, a trip to Danoon took at least six months off our lifespan every single time we went to visit on Boxing Day. And so as we cross on the ferry as a family, all we can see around about us is the greyness of the water, the greyness of the hills, the greyness of our souls leaving our bodies, as we thought about the ways in which Grandma was just going to sit across the dinner table and complain about her friends, how much she hates them, how little they want to do with her, wonder why grandma, how many asthma attacks I was gonna have over the course of the six hours or so that we would spend with her because of all the dust and cigarette smoke. Not so much Judson Van the Third. Judson Van the Third turned to us all on the ferry. He saw the ghostly pale expression on all of our faces and said in his North Carolina accent, no, no, you've got this all wrong. There is a much, much better way to look at all this. Let me show you. And he then started to describe everything that he saw on that ferry across to Danoon. And let me tell you, that journey came alive in a way that it has never been alive before. The trees looked green, the stormy gray of the clouds, the yellow red of the low sun in the sky, all bouncing off the rocky blue water, some of the blacker trees on the blacker hills that held our vista together, all of a sudden, everything transformed and looked beautiful. And when we meet Jesus, as he steps into our world, as he steps into our hearts, he looks at the way that we look at ourselves and says something very similar to my friend Judson. Jesus says, no, 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 when it comes to the self, there is a much, much better way to look at this. Let me show you. See, Jesus tells us a better story of what he sees and invites us to see these things through his eyes rather than looking at these things from our own perspective. And all of a sudden, things look beautiful. So if we're going to see the self through Christ's eyes, let's first turn to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then we'll shortly look at Mark chapter 8. So grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, first book of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible. Um, I am going to pick on Mark McKillen. Can you please stand up and can you read chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, please, nice and loud? Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you, Mark. Okay, um, Genesis chapter 2, just slightly further down that same page. Um, Aaron Hamill, can you stand up and read 5 to 9? And then Samuel Higginett, can you do 10 to 17, please? Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you very much, Samuel. Okay, so on your bits of paper there, there's a couple of questions to discuss in your groups. I am literally going to give you guys two minutes to have a look at those two questions. The first one is this. If you were to say to God, hey, God, describe humanity to me, what would he say from these verses? If you were to say, hey, God, describe humanity to me, what would he say from these verses? And then kind of similarly to that, connected to that, how does Genesis explain help us to understand our purpose as humanity. Does that make together there? Um, Here's a few things I noticed, perhaps you guys did too. So if we go to Genesis chapter 1, before God makes humanity, he would describe his created order as good. After he makes humanity, God would describe his created order, verse 31 of chapter 1, as very good. There is something about the creation of humanity, there's something about the introduction of humanity into the created order that upgrades creation, that takes it from an A to an A+. What is it about mankind that makes creation very good instead of good? Well, the answer is simple. Men and women, humanity, bears the image of God. 
Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God gives them a task, a responsibility to have dominion over the earth, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it. God is the sovereign caretaker of our world and he has placed us as his stewards under his rule and reign to look after the world in which we live. And you might have noticed as well the intimacy with which God creates humanity in Genesis chapter 2. So verse 7 of chapter 2, he forms the man of, um, from dust in the ground, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, a life that means we can know our God, a spiritual awareness, a spiritual life that means we can relate to him, we can hear and obey his voice, we can receive his love and love him back. And that was always the design from day one for the self, care from God and command from God, love from God and law from God, provision from God and protection from our God's. We were never meant to know pain. We were never meant to know chaos. We were never meant to know sin. We were never ever meant to know evil. We were only ever created to know the good of our God. And so one church leader calls us as humans glorious dust. And I think that's a pretty good summary of the self, certainly at this point in creation story. We're glorious in that we bear God's image. We have an ability to love, to do good, to glorify him, we share his sense of justice and mercy and much more besides. There is something special about you and me, something within the created order that dignifies us and makes us unique, separate from the rest of creation. And yet we are dust in that we are not eternal, we are not God, we are not gods, we were created. We were made by God from the same substance that God spoke into being as he created our universe. We don't know all things. We don't see all things. We were never supposed to. There are things that God does that we cannot do. Things that he can do that we cannot. We have limitations, whereas he is limitless. It's a perfect picture of God and the human self. And in some ways, it's such an incredibly sad story that the Bible doesn't end at Genesis chapter 2. Instead of that harmony that we were made for, humanity sins and creation falls. So if you can imagine completing a jigsaw or creating something with a large tub of Lego, if someone then comes over and knocks the table that the jigsaw is on or knocks your Lego tower over, it still resembles the original design, but it's broken. And that is our world in which we live. That is us. That is the self after the fall in Genesis 3. So to take that definition, we're glorious dust, yes, but we're fallen glorious dust, sin-stained glorious dust. And we see that in our capacity to do good and evil as humans. Our glorifying of God is compromised. We can't do it anymore. Our concept of love and justice are knocked out of sync with God's. Our souls are stained by sin. The self is stained by sin. We're separated from him. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Jesus steps into our world to save us from that, to restore the broken and fallen creation and to live as a perfect self and then to unite us to him, ourselves. 
And so if you want to know exactly how the self should live, how humanity was always designed to live, how humanity was always supposed to glorify God, enjoy him forever, Christ models that perfectly as he lives on the earth 2,000 years ago. He liberates us from sin and he liberates us from a sinful view and understanding of the self. And so let's turn to Mark's gospel and let's read chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Let's read verses 34 to 38. John McPherson, can you stand up please and read out Mark chapter 8 verses 34 to 38 please. I'm loving the name Yeah, please. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Back into our groups, the next question I've put on your sheets, just as I begin to wrap this section up. As Jesus liberates us from sin, what does a life of liberation look like? Okay, as Jesus liberates us from our sins, what does a life of liberation look like? like and again i'm going to give you guys 90 seconds and then we'll come back together so together there the liberated life a life where the self is aligned with the very thing for which it was designed and made is self-denial and exalting jesus we were not made to know and glorify the self and to enjoy ourselves forever We were instead made to know God, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Our liberation is from ourselves, not within ourselves. We were never supposed to rescue ourselves or save ourselves. How good does that feel? I remember around 10 years ago, I volunteered at a summer kids club in Ely, which is a little coastal village just down the east coast. And we found a seal that had come out of the sea, off the beach, and was wandering around close to the town. Now, let me tell you, we didn't gather around the seal to celebrate its liberation from the ocean. We didn't congratulate the seal on its newfound freedom. Instead, we phoned the RSPCA, who came and saved the seal by catching it and releasing it back into the environment in which it is designed to thrive. And that is what Jesus does to us. He catches us and he releases us back into the environment in which we were designed to thrive. Self-denial, following God instead. Jesus says to us, lose your life in the present so that you gain it for eternity. And that is the life that Jesus lived flawlessly. And it's the better story of the world that Jesus tells us in the gospel.
We thrive as we deny ourselves and as we listen to God instead. How wildly countercultural is that? See, the world says, look inward for salvation. The gospel says, look upward or Christward for salvation. The world says our greatest need is expression from within. The gospel says that our greatest need is redemption from without. And so as I hand back over to Mac for our last section this evening, we're probably already beginning to see some of the ways in which these things, these kingdoms, these ways of looking at the world collide. So let's close our time together as we think about some of the ways in which Christ-like self-denial does not trap us but instead recaptivates our hearts for his glory and for his goodness and for ours. Mac. Yeah, so we're entering the final straight um, and we're in recaptivating self-absorbed hearts. And so um, in this remaining time, as Scott has said, we want to reflect a little bit more deeply um, and personally, if we can, on where our hearts and minds might be captivated um, by some of the narrative of expressive individualism. And then to discuss how the gospel um, applies um, in those cases, but also to help one another really apply the gospel, really massage it in, really understand it. Um, Because let's be honest, expressive individualism has some really, really attractive claims. And it's what we're hearing a lot of the time. We may not even have realised quite how much we've absorbed it. And so we want to be honest that we might be freed um, to enjoy that better story all the more. Um, I would like to begin, just before we dig into that though, by preempting a possible question that could come at this point. In expressive individualism, there is obviously a call to authenticity. And is that not a good thing? Dare we say, even a biblical thing? Well, in some ways, it is right as Jesus clearly calls out the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and calls them to be true. But we need to be really careful about the terms we're using here because when Taylor uses that term authenticity, um, not Swift, like the Catholic philosopher Taylor, just to clarify, I've just realised, authenticity, he is not using it um, to kind of contrast with integrity. Um, to mean integrity, sorry, like in contrast with hypocrisy. Instead, he's actually using it to contrast with conformity, um, particularly with the institution. So, that is not quite the same, is it? Because the Christian life is one of conformity, but it is conforming to Christ, whilst we are also being true to who we are, to live out the identity. But it is an identity that Christ has gifted to us. And thankfully, it is an identity that does not change. So, like looking in a distortion mirror, we've seen that expressive individualism can distort our view of ourselves, um, but also our view of God and our view of his people. And so I have thought and reflected of a couple of ways that I can see this hitting home for us as a church body, but also for me more personally, before I would love to turn it to you guys to think together about where you might see this resonating and where the gospel could speak into that. So firstly, I was reflecting on it for us as a church family. And we would love church, wouldn't we, to be a place, a family, a home for true humanity. It should be a place where we get to celebrate our collective identity as those who are in Christ 
But I wonder if at least functionally we sometimes can slip into echoes of what the world defines as ourself. Perhaps especially when it comes to um, matters of sexuality and sexual identity. In a world that says you are defined by your sexuality, the gospel has a much bigger and a much richer story to share. So if a friend does come to you and they are struggling with their sexuality, then as we listen, as we pray, as we have conversations, at some point we want to be celebrating that they have an identity that is so much bigger than that, so much richer than that, and so much more wonderful in Christ, but also as an image bearer, as a human. Another way that I have been um, really personally struck by this this week um, is in my own twitchiness when it comes to that phrase self-care. I don't know if other people feel as twitchy as I do about that. Um, But it's actually exposed to me that I, in many ways, have a broken understanding of self-denial. Because I can be tempted to serve at million miles an hour, crash, and then think, right, go again, off we go, and think that somehow that is a really commendable thing. But I have actually missed the point in many ways. And there's a couple of things that I think have been shown to me. First is the mistake of thinking that denying ourselves means denying our very humanity. So this links very much to what Scott was saying. In fact, it is by remembering our God-given limits and accepting God's gifts of sleep, of nourishment, maybe even of solitude, um, that we are being obedient. Because self-denial is only about rejecting any sinful attempt to be our own God. The Bible regularly commands us to remember that we are creatures and that we have a mighty creator. Now, there will be seasons in our life where God calls us to suffer, um, or physically or emotionally for a season, But that is very different to a wrong sense that, like, human necessity is a luxury that I simply don't have time for. A second error that I've seen in my understanding of self-denial is that it's not just a behaviour thing, it is also a heart attitude thing, which might sound very obvious. But if you push further into that, sometimes in rejecting self-care as a self-indulgence, I still feel twitchy about the term, by the way. Um, actually, it can be a sinful symptom of self-dependence, of thinking I can do it by myself, that I don't need any help. That is equally wrong. The third area that I think we could see this um, is a slight tendency towards a therapeutic perception of Christianity. Um, there is so much you could say under this one, and so many ways that I think it would pan out, both in our view of God. Is God's aim in our life our happiness? No. But also in our view of church, we think, well, we want to be happy, and therefore we'll go to church because it makes us happy, it makes us feel less guilty, it makes us feel included and valued. This idea of a therapeutic God totally misses the point because it suddenly puts man back at the centre and God back at the side. God is simply a tool to help me in my pre-decided ambitions for my life. God is a tool for my flourishing. He is a means to an end. He is not the true end that he should be. 
Now, don't get us wrong. We've already said, haven't we, that God has purposed us for joy, but joy in him, enjoyment of him forever, because we are dependents made for another's glory. And so true freedom comes when we're being our true humanity, worshipping our God. And so I would love you guys to think um, in your groups, maybe um, twos and threes, for the next three minutes or so. What ways do you think you can see traces even, just threads or echoes of this culture expressive individualism in the way you think or pray or act? And just speak the gospel to each other. Speak the better story to each other because there is freedom in it for all of us. If you all some case studies, um, feel free to have a look at them. Um, I just thought it would be really helpful for us to start thinking not just where do we see this, but how do we start talking about this? How do we start having a conversation about it? So there's a couple of case studies. Um, feel free to use them. If you have others, great chats are happening. Just keep going with them. Um, I'm going to override the happy chat. Um, I would love to... Um, hear your thoughts afterwards on um, what you would say in those situations. Those are conversations um, based off ones that Erin and I have had um, in the last year. Um, Not with anyone in this room, I hasten to add. Um, But I think it's really helpful for us to think through, what would we be saying? Um, Just a couple of thoughts I had was um, for Callum. Um, It's really interesting, isn't it, how he has suddenly put himself at the centre of a Bible passage that was really not about him. Um, and when we start to see the way of the world, we kind of understand why that happens. Um, but you'd love to address that. And I think also to encourage him, there is a much greater love on offer for him than any love that he could have for himself. He's settling for a weaker love. Um, God has a much more profound love, and it is hard, and some of us may spend a lifetime grappling with the fact that God loves us in Christ. But it doesn't mean that it's invalid to grapple with that. In fact, it is a wonderful thing. And we want to be seeking to understand that more and more and never settling for a second best. Um, For Georgie, um, a really hard situation, really tricky. Um, But I hope we seem to say that she can celebrate that wonderful ordering. It's not one of oppression. It's one of great freedom um, and great joy. Um, but always encouraging uh, someone like her to have real gentleness in those conversations, real listening, uh, real understanding of where people are coming from, and then gently to just ask questions. Um, but I'm sure you guys had many more really, really helpful thoughts. And so I hope you've seen um, over this evening that Scott and I really genuinely believe that the beauty of the gospel is that your life is not about you. And we hope that you have already experienced the huge freedom that comes from looking upward and not inward for your identity, for your sense of self. And we pray that as a church family and that together as Thursday Life Groups, we might help each other to conform more and more into the likeness of Christ, to delight more and more in the purpose that he has for us, and to grow more and more together as a family who is humble and who enjoys its true humanity as those who are image bearers and those whose identity lie in Christ. And so um, we would love you guys to see the opportunity, maybe in threes or fewer, 
which would be twos, uh, all by yourself, uh, you're very welcome to be by yourself, uh, to pray, I'm going to keep going, to pray, um, to God, to ask for his help, to pray for one another, uh, maybe I'll be back to some of your conversations um, for the next arbitrary amount of time, six minutes. Well, um, I'm, I, I, yes, hello. Um, we would love to um, help you guys keep thinking about all that we've been talking about. We very much said, um, Scott and I, that we just wanted to start a conversation. Um, and so we're really, really grateful that we've got lots and lots of time to keep this going. So um, first and foremost, keep praying, keep thinking, keep um, reading what God has to say about who we are. That is the most precious and most valuable thing that we could do. Um, but there are also some wonderful books that um, we used in preparing this, and um, we just gave you a selection of a couple. One of them is Carl Truman's Strange New World. Um, we actually read this as a staff team this year, um, and so you can grab any staff member and say, buy me a coffee, I read the book, I want to talk about it. Um, and they will probably be like, excuse me. Um, but it is a really helpful book in understanding just what is going on in our culture? How did it come about? What is happening? Like, it's a really interesting um, cultural diagnosis. It's a shorter, easier read than his fuller book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, uh, but you could read that if you wanted 400 pages instead. Um, the second book is Glyn Harrison's A Better Story. Um, it is a cracking read. I became like full scale obsessed with this for about a month when I read it. Um, it is such a helpful book. It tracks the rise of the sexual revolution um, in the 1960s and onwards. And it looks at why is it so persuasive? How has it caught the public imagination? How do we respond in gospel ways that aren't just kind of reactive, but actually we're on the front foot, we're unapologetic about the story of um, the gospel and the Lord Jesus. And so it's a wonderful read. Um, he's also done some lectures which you can find on YouTube um, at Keswick Conventions and elsewhere. There were lots of other things we looked at as well. So do come and chat if you want to find out more. The other thing that you can do to find out more is come on NYC. 